Now we continue this evening our study of the book of Romans, which was postponed during the Christmas season, and turn tonight to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. Even though we're going to be focusing tonight on the first two verses only, I would like to read the first 11 verses of Romans, the fifth chapter. Before turning to our evening study, let's bow before the Lord in prayer. We ask, Heavenly Father, that as we now turn to your word, which is inerrant in the whole and in the part, that the same Holy Spirit who has given to us this word by divine inspiration will now illumine the page so that we may see Jesus, so that our hearts may be opened by the blessed work of the Spirit of God within your people, that we may see ourselves as needy sinners saved by grace, and that as we see the wonders of the text, these truths will be used of you to transform our lives and to conform us to the image of your own dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we have shared with our missionaries tonight something of the vision for the Czech Republic and for France, we thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can be a part of that, And that even as we expound the word and our hearts are filled with it, we also may go and share that word with those around us. And even to the four corners of the earth, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans, the fifth chapter, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's look again at these first two verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now people of God, you will remember that at the end of the fourth chapter, Paul rounded off his argument about justification God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who Jesus raised from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. 
And we saw that we especially needed to unpack the relationship between Jesus' resurrection and our justification, our acceptance with God. Christ took our condemnation and death, but he did not remain under condemnation and death. And now we come to the implications of the truth of justification. Paul is going to work this out for us in our lives. Therefore, he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, learn the significance of therefore. The Apostle Paul is working out deductions. The Apostle Paul is drawing conclusions right through to the end of chapter 8 from this great doctrine of justifying righteousness that he has expounded in the first chapters of the book. Is there an overall theme? Yes, there is. He's showing the triumph of the cross, that the cross and resurrection, the work of Christ, is altogether sufficient for us, that nothing can remove the believer from what Christ has achieved, and the overall theme is assurance and the believer's security in Christ. Once again, on the sole basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul knows that assurance of faith is a great issue for believers in this world, and he opens up that assurance in a variety of ways. The themes then are those of assurance of faith and certainty of faith. In verses 1 and 2, we see three things. Peace with God, access, and exalting in the promise of glorification. Having been justified by faith, then, first of all, we have peace with God. God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we are told in verse 1, always through Christ, through his death, his resurrection, his achievement, and not our own. There is no other way. Now, I find it interesting that at the end of each of the next chapters, chapters 5 through 8, each of them ends with through or in Jesus Christ our Lord. Perhaps not the very last words, but at the end of each chapter, in or through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because this new life comes in only one way, and that is in union with Christ. What does he mean then when he says that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God? Well, the peace of which he speaks here is not subjective peace. That is a very important biblical concept, that because of what Christ has done for us, we have subjective peace. But that's not his purpose here. The issue has been the law of God, our relationship to the holiness of God, the wrath of God that was upon us for our sins, and the great question, how can I be right with God? And so peace with God in this section of Scripture means objective peace. In other words, it means reconciliation that has been purchased for us at the high price of the shed blood of Christ. And this involves two perspectives. First of all, God's perspective on our sin and on our need. That we were under his condemnation because he is holy and we cannot simply uh, be forgiven. The debt must be paid in order that we be forgiven. It must be paid. How can God remain just and accept a sinner? Well, that was the whole point of the chapters that we have previously studied And we see in chapter 3, verse 25, really the culminating point when it speaks of Jesus as put forward as a propitiation by blood to be received by faith. God accepts us because the wrath of Almighty God has been dealt with in finality in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Now that's God's perspective. That was the great obstacle, our sin that caused the wrath of God to be upon us. But then there also is our perspective outside of Christ. We were at enmity with God. We did not love God. We did not want fellowship with Him. And when we learn who God is, holy, just, and good, we balk and we devise a God of our own imaginations to fill the place of this God that is revealed in Holy Scripture. In chapter 8 of this book of Romans, in verses 5 through 8, the Apostle Paul describes the one who is in the flesh, that is, the lost person, in these ways. Romans 8, 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, you know that texts such as these could readily be multiplied, and we cannot tone it down if we love the souls of men. That outside of Christ, we are under His condemning wrath And subjectively, we also hate God's truth. So from God's perspective and from ours, sin is in the way of knowing God. And this means that we are by nature fallen in Adam, as he will go on to teach in this chapter, that we are not at peace, but we are at war with God. How then can we have peace? We have peace, basically, this means a relationship with God, Because the obstacles have been dealt with. Because the law that we broke has been obeyed, and the penalty of the law has been paid by Jesus Christ. So that now the way is open for us to relate to God. The obstacles must be dealt with. The penalty of the law paid, the way open for us, strife must be removed. So that amazingly, in verse 10... He speaks of salvation that he has brought for enemies. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies of God, actively opposed to God, God haters. And the accent of Paul's concern falls here on God's perspective in reconciling us to himself. One of the old commentators puts it beautifully, Paul knows that the wrath of God is a terrible reality. And if it be not removed, no change on the part of man can effect a real fellowship between him and God. Now here we are on this Sunday evening, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, studying together the book of Romans as we have been for quite some time. And yet, it is also quite probable that someone is here who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And before we go on, I ask this question of you. Are you at peace with God? That is to say, do you have a relationship with God? Are you accepted by God? Do you know that the wrath of God is a terrible reality? Such a terrible reality that you can do nothing to bring yourself into even a savable state. Do you know that you need the Lord Jesus Christ, that you need redemption by his blood? Is this something of which the Holy Spirit is making you aware? And so God must be reconciled to us and we to him. 
And that is what Paul means by peace. And he says that believers, don't miss this, this precious present tense, believers have peace with God. We need not seek it. We, not may, we need not attempt to obtain it. We need not add to it. It is something that we simply have. God's wrath and the imputed righteousness of Christ are diametrically opposite. That is to say, both cannot be upon us at the same time. Where the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer, there is no longer any room for the wrath of God. And that's what makes the gospel good news. We have peace with God. Just a simple present tense. God is reconciled to us and we are reconciled to him. Now what does this mean for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well basically to have peace with God means that we are no longer under the wrath of God. And I ask, do you grasp that? That this holy, righteous, infinite, eternal, unchangeable God whose wrath was against us is now receiving us and always will in Christ. Do you grasp it? That we sinners who believe in Jesus are free from all that would condemn us. That is what he in his great love has done for us through his shed blood and his resurrection from the dead. And so you sin one day. Who of us does not sin daily? And your conscience accuses you. And you begin to say, well, maybe I'm lost. Maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe I'm not a Christian at all. And how do I know that God loves me? Well, you learn to apply Romans 5, 8, in which we read, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, not good people, but sinners, Christ died for us. And you learn to apply verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly says, The man who has been justified by faith and who has peace with God can answer the accusations of his own conscience. Take another example. Just look at your heart, the evil one will say. What a mess it is. There you are praising God at the same time you have a wicked thought. There you are serving God and at the same time you've torn someone down. Uh, You seem to love God yesterday, but you don't seem to love him today. And maybe he doesn't love you today either. Those are the accusations of the devil, aren't they? Haven't you experienced them? Charles Hodge says it well. If he loved us because we loved him, he would love us only so long as we love him and on that condition. And then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. But you see, justification by grace through faith teaches us that it does not depend on the constancy of my heart, though I want my heart to be constant. My acceptance with God does not depend on the constancy of my heart, the consistency of my life, in order that I might be accepted by God. Now, don't mistake me. I'm very glad that you take sin seriously, and well, you and I should, but I would have you take grace even more seriously. 
Justification means that you no longer have to be self-absorbed in that way. And oh, how I wish I never sinned, and how I long for a pure heart and a pure spirit. But when I do sin, it does not remove the imputed righteousness of Christ. He died for the ungodly, and I don't qualify, and I should not attempt to qualify by my own works and efforts. And it is only the man who doesn't understand that we really are condemned in ourselves, hopeless without Christ, that can take consolation in his own efforts. Only the person who doesn't understand what God has done in Christ is the man who falsely can take consolation in his own works and efforts to be accepted by God. So the question is, how do I have a good conscience before God? That is to say, even though the peace of this chapter is the objective peace wrought by Christ in the cross, how do I apply that to my subjective needs daily? How do you have a good conscience? You have a good conscience, my friend, when you look on Christ as your sin bearer and Christ as your righteousness. Someone has compared it to a needle. The needle always points north. But from time to time there are those things that will hinder the needle and cause the needle to, um, to give you a false perception. But it always returns to the north. So the great doctrine of justifying righteousness is the pointing north of this great compass of God. And even though there are disturbances, yet it always will return and point us to the Savior. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, people of God. And then you will also notice in these first two verses that we are said to have access. So let's look at this verse again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith. Which means that we have the right now, as justified and accepted sinners in union with Jesus Christ, to come into the presence of the holy, the infinite, the eternal, and unchangeable God to come into his presence, amazingly, without fear of judgment. With the confidence that he receives us as children. And so I know the prince. And the prince tells me to come with him into the throne room of his father. And I say, I can't do that. He's too great. He's too majestic. He's too wondrous. I can't do that. But you see, I know the prince. The prince is my friend. And so in the prince who has invited me into his father's palace, I go with him unafraid. Did we have no access before we came to know Christ? No. None. No access before coming to Christ. We were condemned criminals. But now everything is different. You are not excluded You are accepted and invited into the presence of the living and true God. And in this we stand, the text tells us. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Which means that justification which gives us access is abiding and therefore immovable. And you see how Paul is preoccupied again with the believer's assurance 
the certainty of faith, and with his security. We have the right to enter. To stand in grace means the opposite of standing in wrath. And so this is the term that the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2. You recall how he puts this in the second chapter of Ephesians in verse 18. When he says, for through him... We both, speaking of Jew and Gentile believers, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. And you will recall how the writer of Hebrews says similarly in chapter 4 verses 14 following, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the main point of access is the mediation of Christ. It is through Him that we have access, and access implies acceptance with God. What will you do with this uh, tomorrow and throughout the week? Will you have heard these words without application to your lives? Or will you have heard these words And will you get upon your knees this week? And will you seek the Lord? And will you believe in your heart what he promises? That you have access to his very throne of grace. That you, child of God, are loved in his son. That you are received. That you are accepted as righteous. That you may not only come but that he longs for you to come more than you long to come, that he promises when you come that he will hear your prayer and will answer those prayers in that way which is most for his glory and most for your good and the good of his people, will you simply hear, I have access to God, or believer, as we study this book tonight, Will you determine that you will make use of the promise that he has given you and actually feel within your heart what is objectively true? I have access to God. Marvelous truth. A wonderful thing. Now we see how concerned Paul is to show us that we are accepted and that we are secure that we have a permanent relationship with God. But now let's see one other thing briefly. Let's see how he does this one final thing in the text. He tells us, thirdly, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Look at it here in verse 2. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And the word means rejoice with overtones of boasting. Not boasting in ourselves, but boasting in the cross. Boasting in the merit of Christ. Boasting in His work. 
boasting in what he finished and accomplished, boasting in his righteousness. Confident glorying, if you will. So what is the object of this glorying? Well, it's the hope of the glory of God. Hope moves our mind to the future. Uh, Shows that we have a state of mind right now that is future-oriented, focused on the future promises that God has given to us. John Murray says it in a most thrilling way. We project ourselves into the future in hope. Now that's what Paul means. Hope in Paul means something looked forward to in the future that is absolutely certain. And what is this certain expectation? It is called the glory of God. No doubt he still has this in mind when in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, in verse 18, the apostle says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And again in verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So note how the future hope is suffused with the idea of glory in those texts in Romans 8 after the pattern of what we find here in Romans 5. What then is this glory? This glory upon which we are fixed with certain expectant hope, what is it? It is this. It is the manifestation of God's own glory, God's glory reflected in His children when they are completely delivered from all of the devastating effects of the fall, raised from the dead, received glorified resurrected bodies. It is the hope of the coming of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. So that whatever our experiences of sorrow may be in this life, whatever may come to us in this year that is difficult for us to bear, there is something that no one can take from you. And that is the future promise, the hope of the glory of God that will be manifested in the lives of His people in the eternal state. And the Christian life is a future-oriented life. The Christian life is a life that is focused upon that future promise. What is justification if not this? It is the declaration on the last day pressed into time and space now. And that's why it's permanent and that is why it lasts. John Murray again speaks beautifully. The soul of redemptive blessing consists in the assurance I will be your God. And eschatological expectation is summed up in the fact that believers are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. When the glory of God will be revealed, this possession will attain the full fruition of its meaning. The revelation of the glory of God at the consummation has also another interest for believers as the goal of hope. They are interested in the manifestation of the glory of God for its own sake. The glory of God is their chief end, and they long for and hasten unto that day when with undimmed vision they will behold the glory of God in its fullest exhibition and vindication. And I'm so privileged so often to meet and talk with saints of this congregation and others 
who are experiencing debilitating effects upon the body, the great loss and sorrow of a loved one who seems to have left this world prematurely, or someone who knows that his own death is imminent, and to be able to take that saint by the hand and to pray with that believer and to say, do you understand what hope is? Let's refresh ourselves in these truths. You are justified by grace through faith. You are given a future promise that no one and nothing can take from you. Now let's, with access that is freely promised, go into the Father's presence and ask Him to deepen your commitment to that as you move on toward the finality of your death in this life. So we're highly privileged, aren't we? (laughs) We have peace with God, obtained through the cross. We're justified, accepted through the imputed righteousness of Jesus. We have access into the presence of the holy God. Imagine it. You have a hope that is absolutely certain and that nothing and no one can take from you. This morning we were highly privileged to come to the Lord's table. And do you see how all of this flows right along with what Paul has been teaching here in this text? Peace, access, the hope of glory. What are the bread and the cup of which we partook this morning? They are tangible evidences held out to faith of our peace with God. They are tangible evidences of our free access to the Father through the mediation of the Son. They are tangible evidences of the hope that we have of seeing the glory of God manifested in the lives of His children's redemption and in all things as we do this until He comes. The supper of the Lord, as the old theologians used to say, is God's wedding ring upon His bride, in which He has given us the promise that these things are true and these things are so. And in this sacrament this morning, we reached forward, not to some unattainable wish, because we really didn't reach at all. God reached down to us. We did not reach for something uncertain, because certainty is something that God has done for us, to that which is already certain and in which we already rejoice. And as we take these elements time after time after time in this congregation, project yourself into the future in the hope and anticipation of the banquet that we will share with our Lord Jesus Christ and with all His saints in radiant glory. For you have peace. You have access, and you have hope. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.